It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards. Like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, host of Every Day Better, an award-winning weekly podcast dedicated to personal development. Whether you're looking for ways to shift your mindset or seeking more fulfillment in your life, we've got you covered. Join me as we dive into captivating stories and research-backed ideas that have empowered me and others to lead lives with more clarity and intention. Every Day Better, making growth an everyday practice. Listen to Every Day Better on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Welcome to Forward Thinking. Hey there, everyone, and welcome to Forward Thinking, the podcast that looks at the future and says, well, get out from that kitchen and rattle those pots and pans. I'm Jonathan Strickland. I'm Lauren Polkabon. And I'm Joe McCormick. So, uh, yeah, kitchens, future. Dude. What? How, how will these two things collide? Are we all cooks around this table? I'm the cook in my family. I'm a, I'm a baker, not a cook, but I, I'm the cook in in my household also. But so, so baking is is certainly uh, a part of the whole cooking. It's a process. subset of food creation. Yes. Certainly. I'm actually not very good at that. I'm good at all the other kinds of cooking, but not at the baking. Oh, it's much more orderly. I, I the freedom of cooking drives me a little bit crazy. Yeah, I think uh, the difference between baking and cooking is sort of like the difference between being a chemistry lab researcher and a soccer player. (laughs) (laughs) Well, as we have established, uh, we are recording this as the World Cup is still going on. And uh, and I have determined that the rules for soccer allow you to team at least 47 people on the field at a single time. this is just based upon my own observations. I haven't actually looked into the rules. So I'm going to go ahead and say, sure. 
But <laughs> getting into getting into what we actually gathered here to talk about kitchens. Before we talk about the stuff we we have in our notes, one thing I wanted to mention is that the kitchen of the future is one of those things that gets gets looked at fairly frequently and it can be a lot of fun to go back and look at what past predictions of what future kitchens is in. Oh, yeah. Stuff that's now in our past, what they would look like. <laughs> do, do you know? So earlier today, we were all watching this video from, do you all know what year it was from? 1967. Yes. Yeah, and it was predicting the kitchen of 1999. That's exactly right. 99. And it is a rollick. We, uh, yeah. A, frolic, a frolic? It was a, laugh it, a rollicking was, good time. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It was if you like your misogyny with <laughs> with peppy jazz tunes. <laughs> yeah, it imagines that in the future you won't have to do any work to prepare meals, but, but mom's still in the kitchen all day right. anyway. Yeah, yeah she's well, not allowed to leave that room. <laughs> don't don't take that away from women. That's all we have. <laughs> uh that in Valium apparently because she looked so happy. Oh, <laughs> she yeah. was yes, yeah, so she would contact her uh family with the very personal touch of turning on an enormous bank of television monitors <laughs> to check in. And her husband, the loving man that he was, made specific demands on what the meal should be for lunch. Yeah, he's um, all grumbly that she won't make him a cheeseburger her, and a her, beer for her, lunch. Her son, she tells her son that d- lunch will be ready in two minutes, so he starts counting down the seconds because... You know, kids are adorable. Well, it's the future, so it's a robot son. I guess oh, so. Okay. That actually makes way more sense now. He uh-huh. certainly didn't seem all that lifelike. So <laughs> at any rate, the the episode goes on. Some stuff that they predict is kind of interesting because it's stuff we're still talking about today. Well, it predicts, for example, the miracle that in the future all meals will be pre-frozen in advance. I was going to actually <laughs> talk about one that was true, Joe, which okay. was that the, the idea that they had the computer that gave the nutritional value of a proposed meal, and it said, this is 400 calories above what was suggested, so you should really think of an alternative. And here's a suggestion. That's actually something Something that we see with apps right now oh, where sure. you can put in what you were going to make. And so that part was actually realistic. The part about all the food being frozen, I uh, hope, is not a realistic view of what the future is going to be because I like to have some fresh food once in a while. Yeah, well, I was just commenting on the, the bizarreness of how they seem to see this as a really great thing. Well, it's the idea was that for the convenience, right? And it was all right. automated in the video. In the video, she, she essentially said what each person was going to eat, pressed a button, and then magically this frozen food went through a microwave all at the same time and then came out on a very uh, institutionalized looking tray. <laughs> you know, it's got a conveyor belt and then this white cardboard barge of food comes out to serve <laughs> up the, the gullets of the family. And, and, they, it, and did you hear they said they had the, the color-coordinated disposable plates? Like, this was very much a make and throw away kind of culture, which is something that you would have seen back in the, the late 60s, but not so much today. It was specified in a, in a different video. Uh, Walter Cronkite also wound up on this set at some point, And there's another video with him talking yeah. about this amazing kitchen of the of the future. And and he specified that the plastics that the plates were made of would get melted down and made into new plates for the next meal. So there would be recycling. So there, there was, was recycling. That's um, good. Also, I love personally melting down plastic in my own home. <laughs> yes. So there's nothing like that smell. As we have learned as we've worked with the 3D printer we now have in our office, uh-huh. the smell of burning plastic is, in fact, a very soothing odor. Um, Try the new model with lead plates. So... <laughs> And Joe, you pointed out something else that Walter Cronkite said that, that got you kind of 
chuckling about the the interface that you would use to uh, to in the kitchen of tomorrow, right? I can't remember. What was it I said? It was the punch cards, Joe. Oh, that's oh, right. right. Yeah, He's yeah. like, yeah, you'll plan your meal or your, uh, you'll enter your meal preferences with a typewriter or punch card. <laughs> <laughs> so the point that Joe was making, and it's something that we need to point out, too, before we get into any of our predictions, it's that often the predictions we make about the future are based on extending out what current technology is capable of doing. And some things we end up going way off the rails, thinking about stuff that may not really be within technology's uh, scope of being able to do. And other things are going to be far too conservative because it's based upon interfaces that we're familiar with now. And we don't anticipate what that next breakthrough is going to be that's going to completely change things. Yeah, it, it is pretty funny the way we just we can't uh level our expectations for the future we're always being way too optimistic about some things and not even close to optimistic enough about others right so some of the things we're going to talk about today will it will include a little bit of uh criticism and skepticism about a few of the items because uh, they're ones that it may turn out the technology is not sophisticated enough to really deliver upon the promise. Uh, that certainly was made. not within the next couple hundred years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, okay. I don't want to leave the 1960s yet. I want to. Okay. I want to take us back in the way back to predicting the future in the past machine. Right. Okay. Okay. okay so that's uh, a very specific machine. Actually, not this. Th- that wouldn't be exactly right. Not predicting the future. Just talking about the miracle of technology. Sure. Uh, some ni- I found this ad copy from a newspaper ad that was running in the late 60s, like 1968, 69, for a microwave oven. And I just want to read you this copy. Sure. The indoor-outdoor miracle worker. Cook hors d'oeuvres in seconds. A five-pound roast in 37 minutes. A baked potato in four minutes. The amazing Amana radar range microwave oven cooks with microwave energy, faster and cleaner than gas or electricity, though I assume you have to plug it into the wall, but anyway. Well, it's not talking about an electrical right, heating right. element. Right, the, yeah. yeah. Uh, what's more, it's portable. So if you're having a cookout, you just <laughs> wheel the radar range to the patio and plug it in. With radar range, you're always set for an instant dinner party and you haven't stood over a hot stove, suffocated in smoke. Or scrubbed a single pan, because radar range heats only the food, never the chef. See radar range in action at your Amana dealers. If that doesn't make a believer out of you, it's a miracle. <laughs> now, you know, the microwave was really seen as kind of a miracle device oh, when it sure. was first. You, you know how it was invented, right? Or how how the, the oh, principle was it discovered. It was accidentally, right? Yeah. Yeah. So there's a fellow named uh, Percy Spencer who was working with radar tubes. His specialty was what he was working with. Mm -hmm. And he realized that while he was working next to one radar tube, the candy bar he had in his pocket had melted. And he got him to thinking about what might be going on. And he realized that was an interaction of the microwaves agitating molecules inside the candy bar and making them vibrate, essentially, and warm up. And that became the basis for the microwave oven. And uh, and it really was considered sort of this miracle technology. There was no open flame. There was no heated element. And yet you would put food into this thing. You'd hear maybe a fan going off to help distribute microwaves and maybe uh, uh, fan away some some, uh, uh, you know, steam and other stuff coming up from the food. And it was magically hot like it had cooked magically to be to be fair, I'm still pretty impressed by microwaves today. I mean, I I grew up with them. I've always had one right. as far back as I can personally remember, and I that's I mean, it makes my food warm. 
That's, yeah. that's great. Well, it is pretty great if you want to like defrost something quickly or uh, heat or up a make frozen, some leftovers. Yeah, sure. If you've got a frozen dinner, like if you're if unlike the the pictures of the future where everything is frozen and it's wonderful. Most of us are thinking about, well, we, we will depend upon a frozen dinner because it's economical or it's efficient. It's not because it's a miracle of modern gourmet cuisine. Right. I, I want to point out in this ad copy I just read that the incredible tone deafness about what we like in food and, uh, and how the aesthetics of food and, and social gatherings fit together. So they're imagining you want to make a, a roast, I guess, like a, like a rib like a, roast or, or something, a, a five roast, pound yeah. roast in 37 minutes. So you want to put the roast into the microwave and just turn it into a moon rock <laughs> or, or you, you're having a, a barbecue. They say take it out on the patio and barbecue, and barbecue with your microwave because that's exactly like cooking a burger on an open flame. Exactly. That's- Replace the grill. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, it, it's not the only technology from back then that was greeted with wide-eyed uh, enthusiasm and, and awe, right? I mean, right. there were other technologies that entered the kitchen that got incredible amounts of response. But, you know, today we just look back and say, really? So, uh, well, Sure. Well, like in 1958, when the single-armed water faucet hit the market, it was big news. Yeah. You didn't have to have... you. No longer were you slave to two knobs for right. turning on your water. <laughs> yes, now, uh, you could, now you could have a single control where you can go from boiling hot to ice cold in the span of a micron. <laughs> yeah. But, but honestly, probably every single appliance that we use today, refrigerators or blenders or toasters or toaster ovens or whatever, whatever, were probably at one point marketed as... The whatever thing of the incredible future. Yeah, before we started this, I, I made Joe watch a, a Tex Avery cartoon, The Home of the Future, which obviously was meant as a spoof on that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's completely outrageous. And at the same time, you think, yeah, this is dead on. This is exactly the way that those sort of items had been marketed. And some of them, you know, some of them turned out to be pretty cool and they stuck around. A lot of the stuff that's been marketed as the kitchen of the future has not panned out to be practical and has not been widely adopted. Uh, yeah, some of my favorites from the 1950s and 60s include retractable motorized appliances so that all of your surfaces are streamlined. Just like if you want to blend something, you push a button and the blender comes up out of the, the countertop. Counter, right, or oh. back out from the wall or yeah, something like yeah, that. Yeah, et cetera. That'll be fantastic when it breaks. <laughs> See, I, I would just want I would want that, but I want it to be like young Frankenstein style where you, you know, you, you move the salt shaker and then suddenly the wall pivots and then there's your blender. And yeah. That's yeah. what I want. You climb into it. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Occasionally Indiana Jones and his dad are there. And, right. Also motion activated appliances, because uh, if I ever flail like a Muppet, as I do basically every three and a half seconds, I really want that to turn on my oven. Yeah. That sounds amazing. I'm sorry. I just had a horrible image, but it's you you cooking and you like catch your sleeve on fire on the stove. And as you're flailing, all of your appliances are coming or, on. Or you just do the thing that happens to all of us sooner or later. Something you are cooking ends up 
setting off the smoke detector. So you start fanning the smoke detector to try and get the smoke to clear out. And meanwhile, you're making all your appliances go completely bonkers. Microwave starts cooking dry. (laughs) Sparks are flying. Yeah, Yeah, I can see why that didn't catch on. Uh, Also, also waterproof appliances so that you can just like, you know, pressure wash your entire kitchen. I am in favor (laughs) of that. Oh, so it's like those uh, those public restrooms in Europe where the door just closes and then it sanitizes every surface inside. Exactly. Exactly, yeah. You best not be in that restroom when that happens. <laughs> exactly. You will you thought some things you will never forget. Yeah, whenever you walk into a room and you see a drain in the center of the floor, you know some serious stuff's about to go down. <laughs> yeah, it's either it's either like a slaughterhouse or it's an elementary school bathroom. Welcome or... to your abattoir of the future. <laughs> Uh, no, but but some but some of these ideas are absolutely le- legitimate. Like one of the ones that I was also running into in my research a lot today was this crazy concept for electronic photo heavy recipe cards that you can just pull up whenever you want them. And I yeah. was like, oh, that's, hey, that's that's an iPad or yeah, food.com. Or yeah, food. Dot, yeah, essentially the Internet. Yeah. yeah. And there are tons of apps, obviously, as well. Some of them are specifically geared toward living a healthy lifestyle. They might be part of a fitness app that will give you ideas for recipes that will help you on your on your plan to either lose weight or gain muscle mass or whatever it may be that you're doing. So that's one of those that actually has panned out. It's kind of like we were talking about that video at the very top of the show, the bit about predicting, hey, this particular meal that you have planned doesn't meet your nutritional guides that you have set up. Therefore, you might want to think of this other thing. That's pretty cool that some of those things are starting to pan out now. I think we should transition to today and start making our own wild and crazy predictions that people of the future will make fun of. Okay, let's do that. (laughs) Well, no, let's actually uh, let's do that. But let's also try to introduce a little bit of level headedness and say "Mm, maybe, maybe not where we feel it's warranted. Uh, But I think the main thing I want to get at first is. How the Internet of Things, this concept we've talked about before, will mm. apply to the kitchen. And we actually already talked about the kitchen a little bit back when we were doing our original podcasts and video about the Internet of Things. But we wanted to go into more detail about that today. Right. And some of that just means keeping track of what you have and what you don't have, right? That's one of the basic things, the Internet of Things. Whenever you see anything about a refrigerator, for example, almost always one of those is inventory control, where you, it keeps track of exactly what you have in there at any given mm-hmm. time. So if you have decided, hey, I would love to make such and such tonight for dinner and you put that in, it could actually cross-reference your fridge and say, oh, well, if you want to make that, then you need to go to the store and also pick up these two other res- two other ingredients to mm-hmm. make that dish. Yeah, that, that I think that's a great idea. We should probably do a brief aside just for those who have not seen our previous Internet of Things content to define the concept. Oh, it's, sure. Oh. The Internet of Things means we just take the same concept, but a smaller proportion of all these things you interact with are virtual documents. A lot of them are real appliances and objects and mm-hmm. things in your environment. So you're the lamp and the refrigerator and the stove and the couch and the lock on the front door are all communicating with your computer and your mobile device. Right. And some, sometimes they'll even just be communicating with one another and you don't ever have to get into any kind of control situation with your laptop or mobile device at all. Right. These could be completely automated devices that are relying on input from sensors and then based upon some change in the environment, they react in a, in some way. So, for example, you walk through the door and all your lights come on or, you know, it turns to a certain time at night and certain lights either 
either dim or go out, that kind of thing. It's all basic stuff that we've seen gradually evolve over the last few years. And now we're getting to a point where we can seriously start putting this technology in all sorts of things. Right. So to get back to what you were talking about earlier, you can immediately see how this could be really useful if if you just had, say, a refrigerator mm-hmm. that talked to your to your phone right. and knew was able to somehow know what was inside it. So you're on the way home from work. You know you need to go to the grocery store, but you can't remember if you already have eggs in the you fridge. You can just check. You can just check the app on your phone, and the refrigerator comes on, scans, says, yes, you have four eggs in the refrigerator. It may even be able to tell you whether or not the stuff you have is still good. It may say, you know mm-hmm. what, you want to buy in some anyway. Yeah, you got they're... these seven weeks ago. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah it makes me think of uh, the, the King of the Hill thing, where you would get a little text from your on your phone and say, there's some milk in the fridge that's about to go bad, and about three <laughs> seconds later... There it goes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And this isn't all that far off in the future. LG is currently working on a system that would let you text your appliances and like talk to your appliances as though they are living things like the brave little toaster. Uh, you'd be going like, hey, fridge, do we have any eggs? And it could answer you or, hey, oven, let's cook a pot roast. And it would pre-program itself for optimal pot roast temperature. That's pretty cool. Uh, yeah, I can see this being, in fact, very easy to do if uh, if you're talking about packaged foods, because packaged foods, I think it'd be pretty easy to encode RFID right. into the packaging, which, which, which would... some people are incredibly resistant to. But I'll talk right. about that in a second. Right. Oh, sure. I'm not saying we necessarily should do this, but sure. uh, if you so you put the new coffee creamer in the fridge, the box it comes in has RFID. The fridge knows that there's coffee creamer in there and when it came into the fridge right. for the first time. So that seems easy. It seems harder, though, how you might manage things like meat and produce. Maybe you would just put those in a package also. though. That Then you're talking about increasing more and more plastic and stuff right, like that. Exactly. Like how do you how does the, the fridge know what is in it? And there are different ways of going about that. There's the RFID mm-hmm. chip, like you were saying, which some people say, well there's a couple different concerns there. One is for people who just don't like that kind of technology, period. They they find that to be uh, invasive. invasive. Yeah, because it essentially means privacy that issues. Who yeah. else knows that I have this stuff in my fridge? And it doesn't matter whether the stuff in my fridge is something that I should be ashamed of or whatever or, or you know, worried about. It's that on principle, no one's business but my own is what, you know, that's that's my fridge. You have no business knowing what's in there. Right. Oh, sorry. Quick diversion again. Uh, just if you don't know, RFID, radio frequency ID. So yeah. it's sort of like having a barcode that you can identify with a radio signal. Right. And another concern is that by including RFID, you end up increasing the cost yeah. of the items because they have to incorporate that into the packaging. And, you know, anytime there's a big change in packaging, whether it's, you know, it might be something that's mandated by the Food and Drug Administration. If there's a discovery that a certain type of packaging can be dangerous, then obviously. Like, oops, this plastic we've been using and everything is leaching cancer causing yeah. chemicals into your Exactly. Food. So yeah. now you got to change everything. Well, mm-hmm. that can mean that the cost of the item may go up. So there's some people who object on that basis. You could have something where it would be more for packaged foods, things that already have like a barcode on it, where you scan the code before you put it in the fridge, uh, either with an app on your phone or maybe the fridge itself has a little scanner. Yeah, I'd but, imagine it wouldn't be hard for the fridge to do it automatic. Yeah, sure. you just have to have a, a scanner that you could have the code face. And it goes real. I mean, anyone who's used a scanner at one of those grocery stores, like a self-service thing, knows they're incredibly fast. Yeah. Sure. But it means that you do have one extra step besides just 
yeah. grocery shopping and then putting everything in your fridge. I could I could envision some kind of uh, weird sort of creepy technology that would let you while you're scanning your items out at the grocery store, it sends a message out to your fridge. Sure, yeah. And says, hey, the, these are the things that are about to come in. Uh, or perhaps some kind of system of uh, the cashier at your grocery store could send you home with a little RFID packet of like, hey, this is how much meat you bought and how many veggies you bought yeah. and stuff oh, like that. Oh, yeah. So I mean, all of these are possibilities. It's it's yeah. really the, the point we're making is that the technology for the interconnectivity is there. It's the implementation that is the question. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it, part of the question with a lot of these things we're going to bring up today, I think you all will probably agree, is a lot of them uh, seem like they could be cool and could be useful, but they all also would be expensive and at least at first. Sure. And difficult to implement. So sort of the question is. Not just can we do it, because in most cases, I think it's easy to do it. Just is it worth it? Sure. Is it worth going through all the effort to do this? Does it actually save you that much energy? Time, energy, yeah. right. Right. Is it is it truly convenient enough for it to be worth the investment? Yeah. Uh, so I want to talk about another possibility with the Internet of Things in the kitchen, which is uh, communication between devices for the preparation of food. Sure. So, for example, if you have picked a like you want to make a lasagna and you have uh, sent that message to your fridge, say, that's what I want to do today. I'm going to make lasagna. And your fridge has looked at the stuff that's in there and it's told you, hey, by the way, you need to go and buy uh, some some uh, tomatoes. You need to go buy some garlic, everything else. You're good to go. You go to the store and you buy that. Meanwhile, the fridge is also talking to the stove and saying, Hey, you know, big boss man's going to be home in about 20 minutes. Let's go ahead and start preheating so that it's ready to go uh, once the he's back and is ready to put the lasagna in the oven. And so that's, you know, one of the ways that this could happen where you have this intercommunication between different devices that work together. Uh, and because they're all on the same page, they can make sure that uh, all the settings are proper for whatever it is you want to make. That's the idea. Uh, personally, I'm a little nervous about the idea of my oven preheating when I'm not in the uh, house. Right. Yeah, yeah. Like you accidentally, like you, you butt dial your oven while you're <laughs> right. Yeah, like, you sit down. I want to you, cook. I want to cook a cake of uranium yeah. in my oven. <laughs> you know, let's preheat to five thousand yeah. degrees. Please, please begin self cleaning. Right. Oops. <laughs> All day. And then you go inside. Like, why is it so hot and on fire? Um, yeah. Uh, so there are some definite definite things you got to think about. But it's a neat idea. The idea of these separate devices that usually are their own thing that have no connection with each other other than the fact that they're all involved in some form of the food production process. Now they're actually working together. You could even have stuff like uh, sinks working together in various ways. I'll talk a little bit more about that later. It's not just you know, the obvious fridge and oven kind of pairing. It can be other things as well. And uh, that's pretty neat, although the big limita limitation there is that, as far as I know, no one has come up with a uh, like a, a third-party standard that these devices use to communicate with one another. In other words, you if you kitchen want kitchen protocol, yeah, if you want these <laughs> if you want these appliances to talk to each other, you have to buy all of them from the same source. So even if you love one company's refrigerator but you love another company's oven. 
you're not going to be able to take advantage of this interconnectivity because they're talking two different languages. You would have to buy them all from you'd have to make a compromise on either the fridge or the oven and buy them both from the same source. Or, I think clearly Android needs to start programming these things <laughs> so that it can be like ice cream well, maker instead of ice cream sandwich. You know, It'll yeah. totally Android nice. bought Android bought Nest. So there is a chance that we're going to start seeing some Google based stuff that would allow third-party manufacturers to use that kind of operating system, meaning that as long as you had that operating system operating on on the multiple things in your kitchen, they could talk to each other. So while while you're making a, a clever joke, it's also very much in the realm of possibility. Although, okay, one application of this is the idea of, of remote controlling, which is a thing that exists right now. Yeah. Like oh, yeah. On, on the market. I mean, the, the idea of being able to, if, you know, if you put something in your slow cooker at the beginning of the day and you're like, oh, it's 3 p.m., I'm going to turn this up to high to do whatever it needs to do. Right. And then when you come home, delicious meal is cooked. Um, that's yeah. cool. Yeah, or, that's, that's awesome. That's a great, great idea. There's a there's a digital thermometer on the market that will ping your phone when your food is ready. Also amazing. That yeah, that's not even all that advanced, but I can see how that last one you mentioned might be one of the most useful of all. Not necessarily for when you're out of the house, but let's say you've got a roast going and you want to be outside or somewhere else, you know, and and so it just pings your phone and says, oh, it's come up to the right internal temperature. Right. It's 165. It's safe for eating. You yeah. want to come eat yeah, it now. Yeah, if you, if you happen to be, you know, making a, a Thanksgiving dinner and you want to know when the turkey's ready and, you know, you've got a lot of things going on all at once, it's very useful. Uh, and you don't have to worry about accidentally cooking uh, something for too long and making it all dried out and inedible, like the way almost all of my big meals turn out to be. <laughs> Small meals I'm great yeah. at. <laughs> yeah. Yep. I'm sorry. Well, what about what about other applications here? Well, okay, so we just talked about how the Internet of Things could give you data on your food, but what about data about yourself? Yeah, this is kind of going back to that idea of having things like fitness apps. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we have apps right now that you can wear, and they tell you, hey, you know, you took this many steps today. That wasn't many steps. Maybe right. you should take more steps. <laughs> you burned, uh, you burned oh. approximately this many calories. And yeah. and you can enter on the Internet uh, your food consumption, and it can tell you that really wasn't enough steps for that cheeseburger that you ate. Right. right. So, yeah, there, there are already today food diary apps. You know, sure. you have an app where you can put in the food you ate, and it's supposed to help keep track of your your nutritional consumption. But the problem with things like that is they rely on you, the user, and we're not very good at keeping up with stuff like that. I mean, right. it relies on you to remember to update it with all the stuff and also be honest when you're updating it. And which, it, it requires a lot yeah. of motivation on the part of the user, right? The, yeah. the, the user has to be motivated to continue to put in this information. We find that the more we automate this, the more likely someone's going to stick with it because it it's something that is happening passively in the background. They don't have to actively enter in that information. The more you ask of the user, the more dedicated they need to be for them to stick with it. Yeah, of course. Now, you get to a certain point where it's like, well, wait a minute, how exactly would that work? That might be a harder question to answer. Like, how does the app get the data, the nutritional data on all the food you're eating? Right. You know? Right. How does it know exactly what you're preparing and Again, in what proportions? Uh, right. It's it's an easy thing to do with prepackaged food because you're like, well, I put this microwave thing in the microwave and then I ate it. That's pretty cut and dried. Right. But it also might be an interesting thing that if this were a big enough deal in the future, restaurants could 
help cater to it, right? So like a restaurant menu might say like, oh, okay, you're about to order this, scan this QR code with your phone, and this will update your food diary with the nutritional information of the thing you're about to eat. Yeah, right. although, although uh, restaurants do frequently partner these days with those those food diary apps and mm. give you the nutritional content, the hypothetical nutritional content of whatever they're making. That's right. true. Assuming you can they're actually, not lying. Oh, yeah, <laughs> that's, that's very you true. You could do something like the, I know of one fitness app where you could put in, uh, you know, various popular food items from, mm-hmm. from normally it's like a national chain restaurant. It's usually, mm-hmm. uh, you know, maybe some of the more notable restaurants would also participate, but you're in really good shape if it's a national chain. And if you really want to see a fitness app go berserk, tell it that you just ate a blue and onion by yourself. <laughs> and it'll, uh, it'll, it'll just start Danger, crying. Will Robinson. Yeah. <laughs> Wait a minute. So you do that every day at lunch. I'm curious what happens. Well, uh, have you seen that scene from Return of the Jedi where Jabba the Hutt is revealed for the first time? <laughs> it's essentially my life. I am kidding, Jonathan. I have never seen you eat a bloomin' onion. No, I like to go into a very dark place when I do that, <laughs> both mentally and physically. It's, Wait, it's alone time, yeah. Which which place is it that has the bloomin' onion? Uh, that's Outback Steakhouse. Yeah. What's the one at Chili's called? That one's the Awesome Blossom. Oh, Would you like to tra- test you know me on any of more of these? What are the other fried onion dishes you can tell us uh, about? You know, uh, let's not go into my personal life too deeply. Let's uh, let's let's transition to something else. How how about what if? What if I have all this cool technology in my kitchen and I've got all these great ingredients in my kitchen, but then I remember, I don't know how to cook. <laughs> yeah, this is an idea I came up with that it, it sound this might be the most far-fetched of all of these, um, but it's not totally impossible. I want to talk about real-time cooking instruction. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've noticed that, so I, as I said, I'm the cook in our house and, and a lot of times I want to try a new dish. Sure. But- that's a lot of times it's just easier to do something you've done before that you're familiar with. You know, I know all the steps when you're trying a new dish, you spend a lot of time going back and forth. Mm So I'll be doing what I'm chopping something or cooking in the pan. And I'm like, Oh man, I need to go look at my computer. You're you're, you're like, how much of that was I supposed to put in or how long was I supposed to cook it for? Right. Yeah. Yeah, And it keeps, you have to keep going back and forth and that really sort of interrupts your rhythm. And and it's hard to get a good feel for it. The first few times It, it really, you have to make a meal a good number of times before you really start getting comfortable with it. Sure. Um, another thing is that cooking a lot of times involves techniques that are not very intuitive. They're difficult. You got to practice them and, and you don't always have somebody looking over your shoulder like you're in chef school. <laughs> right. Go, going, no, no, the, it's not coating the back of the spoon. It's not ready yet. You need to keep cooking it longer. Exactly. Yeah. So I was wondering if a kitchen full of smart devices could actually give you real time cooking instructions. So maybe instead of downloading the recipe, mm-hmm. you download the, I don't know, whatever file extension is for real-time cooking, you <laughs> upload that to your kitchen, and then it's ready to go. It's your coach now. So it tells you what you need here and what What's you need here. What's the next step as you, you need pr- to do? Yeah. It's, it's going, what are you doing, Dave? You're supposed to add right. the carrots now. Right. Yeah. And, and depending on how sophisticated it is, could maybe even give you feedback, right? Well, and there are some suggested uh, social apps for this kind of thing where it's not 
automated. It's actually other people. Uh, some of them are made to be these kind of weird social gatherings like a, a, I saw one that was a concept of a bowl and you could put various ingredients in the bowl and then the bowl would allow you to connect with other people who have the same kind of bowl and the same ingredients in it and then have conversations about what you were planning on doing with said ingredients and how you're going to prepare it. And maybe you change your mind. You want to prepare it the way this other person's preparing it. And you can have this interactive cooking experience remotely. I don't know how realistic that <laughs> That is. I've also seen. Um, I've also. What? Sorry. What I imagined is you get the bowl and you put like eight onions in it and you say, "I plan on eating these like apples." What about you? No one, unless someone else has eight onions in their bowl, it's not going to connect anyway. So it'll just be you by yourself crying and eating onions, which is what I do on Tuesday nights. Anyway, the the point being that I've also seen a lot of. Um, Technology saying that, you know, using things to, to connect with actual chefs mm-hmm. where you could get one on one time. I don't know how realistic that is because that's a lot, that's a huge time demand for experts, right? How right. do you get the experts to dedicate? You okay, give them lots of money. Yeah. For like the next six hours, you're going to sit here and whatever anyone wants to cook, even if it's macaroni and cheese, you are going to be here and tell them how to do it. Um, <laughs> that's a possibility as well, but. I, I see this happening in a, in a combination of ways, both the automated way that you were suggesting, Joe, and in this kind of – at least there, there are a lot of pushes to move to a social kitchen. And I'll talk a little more about that a little bit later too. I just want to say that I really don't want my kitchen to become a new source of chat roulette. Like they're, they're, <laughs> that is absolutely what I don't want. I imagine that most of these would allow you to have a, a select group of people that you connect to if you were, wanted to do so and not force you to connect with, <laughs> with, with naked cowboy who chef also roulette. likes to make a <laughs> chef roulette. Yeah. So, they come in, but like half of them are trolls. They're just like, no, you put the eggshells in. Yeah. No, put them on in there. Yeah. <laughs> they add fiber. It's yeah. great. Yeah. Yeah. This, this can be awesome. Well, uh, did you want to say anything else about this, Joe, before we transition to the next point? No, I actually did. I just wanted to follow up. I think I mentioned briefly, but one thing I think that would be the hardest thing about this, say you had some kind of automated system in the kitchen that would give you real-time feedback, is um, how does the kitchen keep track of what you're doing? Like, right. How does it actually know when you're doing something wrong? That seems like it would require a fairly sophisticated, I don't know if it'd be visual identification with cameras or something. I think the most likely answer to this would be not to try and build out your kitchen with such sophisticated technology that it could easily take keep track of what you were doing, but rather have an interface that was maybe voice activated. So you've mm-hmm. got perhaps a display in front of you that you're working on. And you're doing whatever the step is. And once you're done, you say next. And then it tells you what the next step is. That, to me, makes more sense than trying to build in an automated system that detects when you're finished. Right. So it might be less less complicated, less giving you feedback, but more just kind of coaching you along. Sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the feedback would essentially be when you serve the dish to another human being and see whether or not they're able to choke it down. Yeah. Yeah. So moving on to other stuff that we might see in the kitchen of tomorrow, this is one that was briefly shown at the beginning of the video we saw. I, th- I have a feeling that the video we saw was an excerpt because it felt like it, it was. Yeah. yeah, it felt like it ended rather prematurely. But uh, the home garden inside a kitchen, this is something I've seen several times. Where In the video we saw from 1967, it was just a, a shelving unit that had a bunch of plants on it. And uh, the the domesticated mother... <laughs> The poor woman who uh, is uh, still entrapped in the kitchen, despite the fact that everything's automated, uh, ends up p- 
picking some flowers for like a little centerpiece. But the idea has persisted about being able to grow herbs and, and vegetables within your kitchen so that you have fresh ingredients right at hand uh, whenever you like. And there's still lots of different ways of implementing that. One of the ones I saw was there's a company called Electrolux. And if you ever want to see crazy concepts and prototypes, Electrolux has them all the time. And most of them, I'd say a good number of them, the the design ends up being incorporated into various uh, technologies down the line, but you hardly ever see an actual like one-to-one mm-hmm. product come yeah, out product of one of these concepts. Of, yeah. yeah, the concepts are usually pretty kind of, kind of Jetsons-y. But one of the ones I saw, was, it looked like a microwave oven, but it was in fact a little home garden and had a, a ultraviolet light inside of it that would provide the light needed for plants to grow. It could be temperature controlled. It could actually control the intake of water so that you have a, an ideal growing environment for whatever you have in there. And then you just grow herbs so that you can use fresh herbs whenever you're cooking, which is a cool idea. I've also seen growing walls. These are walls that oh, actually yeah. have, uh, yeah, like herbs or vegetables on them. And in fact, saw a really cool one where it uh, was proposed that not only was it a growing wall, but it would use gray water from your sink to be the water for the plants. So you're not wasting as much water. You're actually reusing water and uh, and and depending upon that, instead of just washing it down the drain. Just for the uh, aesthetics of the cooking experience, I think it'd be nice to have more plants in the kitchen, a growing wall and stuff like oh, that. Yeah. Uh, because cooking outside is really nice. I like being around nature, but there's one major problem, or two actually. It's a weather and bugs. Yeah. You know, and here, so here in Atlanta, not, not great things when you're cooking. Here in Atlanta, the weather that especially in the summer months, can mean that you have either incredibly violent, although usually brief, thunderstorms, mm-hmm. or you just have insanely humid, hot days. Oppressive where, heat. Yeah, yeah, where you thought, wow, this is really nice for the, maybe the first minute and a half. And then after that, you think, this was a miserable experience. I never should have done this. Right. Uh, but uh, the, another thing that we talked about briefly was the idea of the kitchen as a gathering place, which I don't know about you guys, a lot of the parties I go to, they tend to... Everyone up, winds up in the kitchen. Yeah, the kitchen becomes like the place where most people spend a lot of time. There's one of my favorite parties to go to. That's like the that's the location. Everyone ends up in the kitchen. When you have 30 people in a kitchen that's designed to hold five, it gets pretty cozy. But the idea of the kitchen of the future may be to help facilitate that further, to make, to make the kitchen uh, have certain integrated features that make it more of a natural gathering place. And in the video, I talked about a couple of these, kind of like, you know, a, a speaker system where you can have different kinds of sounds that uh, complement whatever the the event is, whether it's a, a romantic dinner or maybe you're just by yourself and you want to do a little dance while you're making your food or it's a big party and you want to have some lively music playing. And there are other elements to it as well. Then there's this, virtual social interaction that I am, you know, we mentioned it earlier, I am a little skeptical of. And the reason I'm mainly skeptical of it is you guys know that when, uh, you know, video phones were first starting to become a thing, everyone was predicting like, oh, this is going to be the phone of the future. Right. All right. Well, we now have that technology integrated into practically everything, whether it's a smartphone, a laptop, computer, whatever. And maybe I'm just not the right demographic for this technology. I don't know about you guys, but whenever I accidentally press the FaceTime button on my phone, because it's always accidental, I'm like, ah, turn it off. They're going to see my hideous face. Yeah. It's I, I, um, <laughs> a really violent reaction. I have never, I have never used video Skype to talk to someone 
casually. Whenever I've used it, it's in order for me to do a business of some yeah, kind. Yeah, to do yeah. an appearance on a podcast, for mm-hmm. example. Um, I've done that several times. I've used Skype or Google Hangouts as a video chat for for work purposes or for appearing on a podcast, but I've never done it just to you know call up my buddy. And part of that is because uh, you know I don't want to stage my calling area <laughs> yeah. so that it looks so it looks the way I want it to look every time I make a call. I mean, I feel like what's the point of a phone if you can't be secretly naked? Yeah. <laughs> or even I... or even overtly naked, but at least they can't see you, <laughs> right? And furthermore, I think that it it is probably a technology that younger generations are more willing to adapt than us old fogies. That's here. true. And I, I'm still and maybe it is because of my age. I could be biased just because of my age uh, that. But I still find it kind of interesting and uh, unbelievable to think of these social features built into a kitchen and really being used that frequently. But maybe that's just because when I'm cooking like when I'm cooking, I don't want anyone else in my kitchen at all. It is a constant source of irritation if someone comes into my kitchen while I am cooking because it means that at some point or another and probably at multiple points, they're going to be in my way or they're going to be or distracting me. they're distracting me. you, yeah. So maybe it's just because that's also my method of cooking. Maybe if I were someone who liked to have lots of long conversations and interactions while I was cooking, this would be something I would crave. So it's very possible that I'm just coming at this from a biased opinion. In fact, I'm kind of curious. I want our listeners who are, uh, you know, who are also cooks to let me know if they really would think that a social like a virtual social interaction feature built into a kitchen would be something they'd really want. Do you want to have something like maybe a wall in your kitchen that could also be a a FaceTime type display where you could talk to someone else while you're cooking? Is that something you would like? Or are you like me where you're you just you know you want all human beings to cease to exist until you're <laughs> finished cooking and then they can come back? Um I, I'm just curious. Anyway. I think it's time to talk about smart surfaces. Yeah, well, It'd be a nice change of pace. Let's talk about that. Okay. The surface of the moon. Pretty smart. (laughs) No, no. Smart (laughs) surfaces for the kitchen. Uh, So this is an idea I sort of had based on something I saw on the Internet, which was this proposed idea for something called uh, the Nutrima cutting board. Now, this isn't a real technology. It's more just kind of like an imaginative design project. It's a concept, yeah. Yeah. Um, But it, it... it made me think about the idea of smart cutting boards and smart countertops. I right. mean, how cool could that be? I, I really don't like using measuring cups in my kitchen. I mean, obviously, I have to sometimes mm-hmm. to get proportions right. But um, a lot of recipes uh, call for weighing, right? Sure. Oh, sure. Weighing and... things. And also that's also, you know, if you have a scale, that's taking up more space on your mm-hmm. counter and it's another thing to deal with. And it's it's also way more precise. I will put this in, especially if you're baking. If you really want to be a chemist about it, you should be weighing rather than measuring in a measuring cup because measuring cups are right, inherently right. flawed. Right. Volume but versus versus weight. If you want to be a soccer player, you'll just eyeball it. <laughs> right. Anyway, uh, the idea I was thinking about was cutting boards that weigh ingredients for you. So, yeah. I mean, you're preparing them on the, or a countertop, either one, a smart surface that's pressure sensitive. It's got a uh, digital feedback on it. So maybe any part of it or just some parts of it can display feedback and you can create your little pile of diced vegetables or of flour or of butter or whatever it is. 
and it'll tell you exactly how much you've got there. You, you don't need to be keep moving things between different containers mm-hmm. and then cleaning containers to, to measure them. It's all right there on the surface that you're using. Uh, another thing about a smart surface, like a smart cutting board or countertop, would be the uh, ability to help you clean it. It could identify, you know, oh, here's where there's some chicken juice. You might have missed that. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, and it could maybe even clean itself, right, if it had built-in UV radiation. Sure. Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah I've seen a lot of uh, concept designs that are kind of incorporating the features you're talking about. Now, granted, they're all, again, concepts. It's all things like, wouldn't it be awesome if we had this right, thing? Right, Now, from what I can tell, I, I don't think anything about that is uh, is you know, way out there. It seems all doable. Just the oh. question is making it affordable. It's sure. mostly the material science. I would think of having something sturdy enough to be a countertop or especially a cutting board that is also going to be delicate enough to have that kind of sensory technology inside. Of and it. and to yeah. have like even, you know, a lot of these incorporate at least the concepts incorporate a display. So mm-hmm. it's like you're mm-hmm. cutting on a display. Oof. Then yeah. you have to make sure that whatever the tempered glass is, is incredibly scratch resistant because yeah. obviously a cutting board, you're going to be doing a lot of cutting on it. So, right. yeah, there's some there's some material science challenges, definitely. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is also a concept, and it might have been from the same project, that uh, that some cutting board like this could evaluate how fresh the food on it is, like whether or not it's decaying a little bit. Like, like maybe you want to get a different cut of salmon, buddy. Oh, like, sort, yeah. of, sort of stuff. Like it might look out for certain... I don't know how it would do that. I guess it look out for certain chemical Microbes registers. Microbes or chemicals. Yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, again, it's one of those where we talk about, oh, it'd be easy. It just has to look for this thing. Uh, the, you know, we don't necessarily have the implementation of how it would look for that thing. But it's, this is the sort of stuff that engineers can look at and say, is this a feasible feature? Well, how would we build this into a piece of technology? And how would we do it in a way that was practical and affordable? These right. are these are big questions. And right now, some of these questions may be unanswered because we just don't have an answer for it yet. Right. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit more in a minute about nutrient scanning and yeah. what, determining the real contents of a food, if that's possible. But first, I see another interesting note about InSync dishwashers. Yeah, this is just a, a InSync, not the boy band. We're talking about it's inside a sink. Um, oh, oh, I thought you were talking about hiring them to wash your dishes. That I hear they are available. <laughs> yeah, so. most of them aren't really doing much. Right. I was going to make a joke, but then I realized that all the jokes I know, I don't know any of their songs. So I'd just be quoting a random boy band song. Anyway, the in-sync dishwashers, it, sound, it is what it sounds like. There's a, a sink that you can put down a, a uh, an application there where it's actually working as a dishwasher. It usually can wash... Uh, a small load of dishes within about five minutes. It really takes like the, the elbow grease element out of washing dishes where if you don't have a full dishwasher and you usually are only washing a couple, then it's, it makes things easier. Um, and there have been several concepts that were demonstrated even at things like CES, but have never made it to market. So that's a constant hope. One of the ones I looked at was on Tree Hugger. And they were talking about it because it'd be a great way of conserving water. It's not doesn't use as much water as a conventional dishwasher. Mm-hmm. And you don't have to worry, like, if you are someone who only uses a few dishes because maybe you, it's one or two people, then you don't want to be running a, a dishwasher all the time. And then at the same time, you don't want dishes just to keep piling up until you feel like you've justified, you know, running the dishwasher. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a solution for those folks. Um, it's mostly been vaporware so far. But there's even been one, and this was the one that I saw on Treehugger, 
that incorporates sensors that could detect if your dishes were still dirty or even if your produce still needed to be washed. If you put produce into one of these, it could detect, well, are there any signs of bacteria on the produce? Are there any signs of chemicals there? And if you hadn't washed the produce enough, it would alert you saying, no, you need to keep washing until all until your your produce until is clean. clean. Yeah. yeah. So I thought that was a really cool idea. Also smart faucets, kind of similar concept. GE has shown off a concept like this. They showed off uh, the concept it's at CES as well. But again, it's a concept. And the idea is that for one thing, it'd be able to tell how hydrated you are based upon a finger scan. So let's say <laughs> let's say that you've just come back from uh from for all those people who can't tell if they're thirsty. <laughs> Let's say, let's say that you're, you've been fairly active and you're trying to make sure that you are hydrated, especially okay. if you're about to go out again. Okay. Then it might be a good idea to check and see how you're doing. And you, you know, put your finger against this thing. It scans <laughs> you, tells you whether or not you're hydrated. And if it's not, if you're not, it says drink some more water. Yeah. But it also had some other features like it could dispense ice cubes directly from the faucet. So instead of you having to have a, an ice maker or whatever, it was this huge, like round faucet that could dispense water or ice cubes or like custom- soda or yes, customized liquids. You could actually have it hooked up. What? to Yeah. Like, That's crazy. Now, in that case, you would you know, I'm sure there'd have to be some some unit underneath the, the the sink itself where you would hook up something, whether it was soda or juice or whatever, but you would have a button that would dispense whatever it was. Does it dispense salt if you're overhydrated? <laughs> no, the, they, we have those. They're called salt shakers. <laughs> we didn't have to make a, a dispenser for it. Um, but yeah, it was a, another cool thing. And then there was a interactive cooktop that Whirlpool showed off at CES 2014 that acted as a touchscreen display as well as a cooktop. You could, uh, right, right. Using induction cooking so yes. that you can just have a flat surface, flat glassy surface. Right. And you have to have, of course, the right cookware for right. induction cooking to work. But it does mean that you don't have to worry about the actual surface heating up. It's it's heating up the... Uh, the it's heating up the pan. The pan or Rather pie. than the surface. Exactly. Right. Through induction. And so then you have... Uh, a touchscreen display that's right there that can, again, kind of give you that step-by-step approach like we were talking about with the cutting board. What if you moved from cutting board to cookware? Well, at that point, it may not be convenient anymore for you to look over at the cutting board and say, all right, well, how long am I supposed to stir this? Have I been stirring it long enough? That could all be incorporated into one of these interactive cooktops. Or if you just really need to browse Pinterest while you're cooking. (laughs) I mean, look at all these things that look way better than what I'm making. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's that's another one. So there are a lot of different opportunities for these smart surfaces. Okay, so I want to talk about something that we sort of hinted at a minute ago, which is nutrient scanning. So this is telling you what sort of ingredients, what sort of nutrients are in any particular type of food? It could be. I mean, that's the question I wanted to ask. Is it possible? Is it possible to have a device that uh, tells you about the food you're about to eat, even if it's not something that came prepackaged with information from the manufacturer? Or or if it's something something that you yourself have not made, therefore you don't know what's in it. Or it's something you made, but you just don't, you know, I combined a bunch of ingredients. I don't really know the full nutritional profile sure. of this. Can you have a device 
that looks at some food and says, okay, here, here are the main uh, ingredients in it. Here's how much salt it has. Here's how many calories. Here's the saturated fat. Here is, you know, vitamins. And it breaks it all down for you. Sure. Is and that possible? This would be important before we get into the possibility. This would be important for anyone who is, one, concerned about specific dietary uh, issues like allergens. That right. would be a big one, right? Mm-hmm. So let's say that you have ordered out and you got this food coming in and, and uh, you realize, ooh, I didn't think to ask if this was made with peanuts or something along those lines. And there's one way to find out, but that's a hard way. And I don't really want to go to the hospital again. Uh, right. And frequently the way, I mean, traditionally the way that we find out what exactly is in stuff like food is that we burn the hell out of it and yeah. then analyze the ashes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Or, or, or the light that is or given that. off when, while it burns. Yeah. That's uh, spectroscopy where we end up. Uh, uh, spec- uh, mass spectrometry, right? Yes. Right. Specifically, yes. Where we ionize something by bombarding it with electrons and then analyzing it. That's not really an option for a dish that you plan on ingesting. Also, not something that you might necessarily have convenient in your kitchen. <laughs> you may not <laughs> exactly. have a, a an advanced yeah, I, laboratory. I don't think that that kind of thing is going to be used in homes anytime soon. But interestingly, oh, you don't atomize your food before you eat it. You you <laughs> you found <laughs> that's the next level of food snobbery, right? Right. Joe, but you found a an interesting device that yeah. supposedly, at least the claim is that it can give you some information about the food that you have in front of you. Yeah, uh, so the device is called the Telspec. And it is, if you, you can go look it up online and they've got sort of promotional videos and they've got a website. They had an Indiegogo campaign, uh, which they campaigned, I believe, for $100,000 and they far surpassed their goal. So they, they got a lot of funding and they say they're moving toward having this available for consumers. And it's called the Telspec. It is supposedly a device that allows you to analyze the nutritional profile of food by aiming a little keychain thing yeah, at it. It looks almost it, like a garage door opener. Like yeah, a laser pointer, sort yeah. of. Yeah, it's a little thing you can hold in your hand, and it communicates with your smartphone. Okay, so here's how it works. You, you take the thing, and you aim it at the food you want to analyze. So it shoots out some light, a bunch of photons at the food, and then photons come back from the food, and the photons that come back, the uh, energy of those photons will help tell you something about the atomic and molecular composition of the food you have aimed it at. And then once your receiver gets all of that data, it goes and communicates with something called the cloud analysis engine. This would be a thing hosted by the service itself. It wouldn't be on your phone. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they would sort of compare the profile that you've just uploaded with all of the data they have about different types of foods and organic compounds mm-hmm. and say, what are we probably looking at here? Uh, so it's saying like, yeah, there's peanuts, there's some rice-based noodles, there's uh, some tamarind. You're probably eating pad thai. Yeah. Well, or you're and, probably eating peanuts, tamarind. Like, it'll tell you those things, uh-huh. I think. Or, or and come back and say, and the nutritional content of all of those things is this and this and this. Right. Supposedly, that is how it will work. Mm-hmm. Now, that sounds pretty incredible. Yeah. It sounds yeah. really Incredible. Some people would say it sounds so incredible. How could it possibly be true? <laughs> uh, we read at least one interesting critical analysis of it. Right. Over at Reviewed.com, they talked with some experts in the field of analysis and, and discussed whether or not this was 
a realistic uh, implementation. Right. Whether it was realistic to use the it's called a Raman or Raman spectroscopy is the right. style. And that uh, the the critique was that one, it'll essentially give you information about whatever the light happened to hit. So if you happen to be eating a uh, food that's uh, homogenous all the way through, then you're good to go because it's going to right. give you a, an accurate reading. But if it's something that's a mix like maybe you're having a salad or something, then whatever it happens to be hitting, that's the information it's going to get back. If there are other elements in that food that were not in that scan, then it doesn't have the information there. It can't right. tell you about it. It can't tell you really about a pie. If you try to scan a pie, it'll tell you about what's in the top of the crust. That's right. So you might say, you might say like butter and flour and eggs, and I don't know what else is there. That's it, buddy. And you might think, wow, that sounds like a terrible pie. But it's because it can't <laughs> it can't penetrate Beyond that. So you're just getting whatever's at the surface. Right. But with that caveat, they did say, based on the expert they talked to, that it does seem like this is doable. Like, you you can actually use this technique to get a realistic profile of what the organic compounds you're looking at are. Uh, But there is another thing we should note, which is that it will probably rely heavily on that thing I mentioned, the cloud analysis engine. Right. Because it has to go talk to mom. It it needs to go compare what it found to what the computer back at home base actually knows about different food profiles. Right. So if you have something like a truly exotic ingredient that hasn't been profiled or perhaps resembles a different profile, then you might be essentially confusing the system. Or it might be that there's a lot of variation even within common foods. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, so according to an April 2014 piece on Bloomberg Businessweek, the company currently has profiles of 1,500 foods in their database, and they plan to expand that to a million profiles. Oof. All right. So, well, you they... know, don't know, but if, if if they really do that, that's interesting. I'm just scared that they will get to the point where people can point those things at me, and then they'll come back and just say, <laughs> jerk face. Oh. <laughs> or, or, or job of the hut. Yeah. <laughs> or or like or like Lauren is made of 94% Twizzlers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that could be terrifying. Well, no, I think if they scanned you they'd get bloom and onion. That's, <laughs> Obviously. That's awesome blossom thank yeah, that... you. <laughs> sorry, sorry. And so the one last question is are we going to have food replicators? Didn't we already talk about that? We did. So if you're interested in the idea of food replicators, go back and listen to the podcast Lauren and I did about food replicators from April 4th, 2014. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Uh, basically, it's unlikely. Right. But that doesn't that, stop people yeah. from trying. No, yes. no. I mean, if you think you can make a food replicator, be my guest. Yeah. Especially the, if you if you surprise us all, there's a Nobel Prize in that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Please go for it. Don't and, don't hold back. And but. I will personally buy you a sandwich. <laughs> yeah. Or at least replicate you one. So, yeah, probably won't have food replicators, maybe ever, definitely not anytime soon. But you know what? We will have 3D printed food. Yes. Oh yeah, we've got that now. It'll it'll be it'll be gloriously mushy. Yeah. Uh what what I'm imagining is the great 3D printed food adhesion failure problem where <laughs> you're trying to print a pizza but the pizza keeps peeling up and turning into a pizza ball that rocks back and forth while well, the extruder moves around. Well, you just end up with around. a calzone, so it's awesome. Yeah, oh, that's, that's still okay. Yeah. yeah. That actually sounds kind of good right now. Mmm, pizza ball. Yeah, you can tell that Joe has been playing with a 3D printer and had a lot of hands-on experience recently. Well, we're going to wrap this up. We realize that this has been a particularly long episode, but that's because, you know, again, Kitchen of the Future is one of those things that people have really been fascinated by for for decades everyone likes to predict and it's because a lot of a lot of our activity centers in and around the kitchen 
So uh, are we correct with our guesses? Who knows? If you guys have any predictions of your own you want to share with us, join us on Twitter, Facebook, or Google+. Our handle at all three is FWThinking, and we will talk to you again really soon. For more on this topic and the future of technology, visit forwardthinking.com. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilbur Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards. Like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, host of Everyday Better, an award-winning weekly podcast dedicated to personal development. Whether you're looking for ways to shift your mindset or seeking more fulfillment in your life, we've got you covered. Join me as we dive into captivating stories and research-backed ideas that have empowered me and others to lead lives with more clarity and intention. Everyday Better, making growth an everyday practice. Listen to Everyday Better on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.